0: That <laughs> no, was too bad. There so it was part. actually a podcasting recording room <laughs> here that we can use for, for free, but it's only designed for two people. How hmm. oh, beautiful! So we
1: have to change the format. Sorry, Lawrence.
2: Bye bye. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that it's clear who needs to leave right away. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Welcome to the human side of research: conversations to inspire and help you advance in your scientific career. Today we talk about work satisfaction. Authenticity and Culture Change with Professor Calvin Rans.
0: I had written a conference paper and I was sharing the data. And at the end of my presentation, I put a QR code that you could download the data set immediately. And a number of academics came into to me and said, like, what are you doing? You haven't published it in a journal yet. And so, yes, I got ridiculed by academics, but I had 10 different companies contact me after the conference, thanking me for sharing that data. Mm-hmm.
1: My name is Geza and I'm your host. In today's episode, Laurens and I talk to Kelvin Ranz, who describes himself as a teacher, storyteller, and engineer, being also an associate professor at the Faculty of Aerospace Engineering at the TU Delft. We originally approached him with questions around workload, satisfaction, and balance. But as you may hear, Kelvin connects these topics broadly to personal skills, culture, and the academic system as a whole working on all of these three levels with authenticity and creativity as his guiding principles, Kelvin really is a changemaker. Listen to this episode if you want to know how he turns around the imposter syndrome, how reframing failure is central to his teaching and personal well-being, why research funding might be more efficient as a lottery, and more. Enjoy! Yeah. So welcome. Thanks for joining us, Kelvin Ranz.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. First thing we always like to ask guests um, is could you very quickly introduce yourself? Who are you? Where are you working? What are you working on? And most importantly, one thing that you are passionate about that's not related to your work.
0: Wow. Okay. (laughs) So, well, the, the first part is easy. I'm Calvin Ranz. I'm an associate professor at Delft University of Technology in the Aerospace Engineering Faculty, uh, and I do research on failure, and I do education about failure. So I've kind of worked those two things in together. Um, and one thing that I'm passionate about, uh, okay, it's, I, it's hard because your passions do bleed into your work. To some extent, uh, but I really kind of feel that part of me was this creative arts-type student who didn't have enough skill to go into the arts. Uh, so I like to dabble in things like animation, logo design, graphic design, uh, videography, um, and I uh, I do that as a hobby. I play around with all kinds of things, but it does bleed into my work. It's not directly for my work, but it does influence my work. So,
1: Yeah, but you probably also have some art projects that are not related to... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, and actually my son, uh, my eldest son right now, is studying graphic design, ah. and it's really actually fun uh, to uh, to have his more artistic side clash with my um, more data-focused and research-focused, and, uh, and we actually kind of uh, challenge each other because he's looking at how can you apply artistic graphic design for visualizing data mm-hmm. um, so I can bring the, the data and logical side and he he can compensate for my lack of artistic skills. <laughs> wow.
1: So. Sounds like a beautiful collaboration. Yeah. Nice. And um, well, today's topic is work-life balance. We're also here, by the way, with Lawrence. Lawrence is joining. I'm in. here as well, silently <laughs> listening. <laughs> silently. Um, My first question uh, for you would be, how would you um, define work-life balance for yourself? As in, when is it going well for you?
0: Um, I would say a good work-life balance uh, means that you can, at least for a period of time, disconnect from one or the other. Um, I, well, just like we were sort of saying in terms of the passion being separate from work, so many things overlap and i don't think there's necessarily a clear separation between work and life especially in academia right like work is such a portion of your life um but the priorities in your life are different than the priorities in your work and it's being able to you know in 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 certain moments say okay these priorities matter these ones i put to the side and vice versa Um, and being able to do that at times uh, and, and, and juggle the where you're placing your, your priorities is uh, is my important definition because everything else is so merged. Um Especially for myself, I'll actually let you know that my wife actually works in the same faculty as me. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our dinner table conversations are about stuff in the office, uh, which is work, but we're talking about it in a way of sometimes just venting it's kind of that you know what you do with your spouse right you had a bad day at work i just need to get it off my chest Hmm. Uh, so i can switch my brain to okay this isn't work related this is this is my life i need to hear about it and listen to it in a different way and i also need to realize that sometimes we have to just say okay we're not talking about work today because i can't disconnect enough from it
3: yeah
2: was that boundary clear from the start? Or did it take a few years of marriage before you found what was the best way to Let's
0: go. say the need for the boundary was clear. Uh, it, take, it took, like anything, any learning process, it took many mistakes to sort of realize. Um, and uh, reading your, your, your partner so, if my, my wife was complaining about something and I was having a bad day and it was connecting to too many things, she could see it on my face. And so she starts to be like, you know, this you're you're less listening to me and you're more thinking about the thing at work, the situation at work. And Mm -hmm. I would say yes. And she's like, okay, then we're not talking about it now. And it took a little bit of that reading the other person. And now we're in a zone where we just sort of say, you know, I can't handle um, gossip's a big word, but I can't handle hearing any drama at work. That's the word I was looking for, drama. Uh, because there's just too many things going on I can't disconnect from that so let's talk about a Netflix series or something (laughs) non-work related
2: Whenever you slowly see them and uh, shake their heads it is time for the other to be quiet and talk about other things If you mention just a moment ago, especially in academia where interests merge uh, how would you describe that? How would you recognize that?
0: Well, it's It's uh, the brilliance of academic freedom, right? Academic freedom means you have the freedom to pursue anything you feel worthwhile pursuing. Um, So if it's a worthwhile pursuit, in a sense, some of your hobbies and things you like to do in your life are also worthwhile pursuits. So I would say they almost always have overlapping regions and it can be from anything like Again, I'll mention my wife, she does yoga. She's very passionate about yoga. And the whole philosophy of yoga and things she's doing in yoga actually comes into how she approaches things at work. Mm-hmm. And and um, so you, you do get that sort of overlap. And especially when you're given the freedom to pursue things the way that you want to. Um, and hopefully most academics have that freedom. Sometimes you have a horrible manager that doesn't give you that freedom. But let's assume you do have that freedom. Then, uh, yeah, it it uh, it becomes less of a, a job. It's work, but it's not the sort of classic sense of a job of I clock in nine to five. I do this. This is my expectations. Um, it becomes a, a noble pursuit that defines you. It becomes part of your persona, part of your life. Mm at the
1: same time um it can also be um, a risk right this this being integrated so much with your work that makes it even harder to disconnect from it um, when you go home and i hear that a lot from tenure trackers who say i really love my work but i find it so hard to stop working at some point and then i get into the family work balance conflict because my wife wants me to be there or my spouse yeah. wants me to be there. But I really want to finish this project or this grant application. and um, yeah,
0: do yeah you see I, that around you? I, I do. Um, and I think that's less about the division between work and life and more about um, the expectations and stuff you put on yourself at work. So the other side of academic freedom is because no one's telling you what to do, most of the time you're setting your own expectations. Um, and we have this, uh, competition is, is is healthy sometimes, but we have this unhealthy competition of, you know every academic is trying to be above average. Um, but the law of average is 50% of people have to be below average. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so that lack of placing a ceiling on, on what you can accomplish and on expectations and continuously comparing yourself to others, as well as imposter syndrome, I would say almost every academic has a bit of imposter syndrome feeling they're not good enough to be here. Um, that places the expectations up really high. Um, and I think if you can bring those expectations down, then the work-life balance isn't so problematic Mm.
1: Um, is that only at the professor level that you're saying you there's nobody telling you what to do um,
0: no Um, well of course there's always things that you have to do right you have certain academic services and and that. but um, you know even if you're assigned a course how you teach it is oftentimes up to you or Mm -hmm. what you're going to pursue for your research or or what grants and stuff you apply for um, is often up to you mm. um, and that's where um, we overload ourselves because you place the expectations 99% of the time if you pursue that you actually want to do that but you just take on too much
3: mm.
0: no one says stop um, that was a lesson I had to learn the hard way my manager I, I was lucky my manager often told me you know you need to learn to say no. You say yes to everything. And I and I looked at it and I said, yeah, but everything I say yes to, I want to do.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, but you can't do everything. And the realization you have to come to is uh, you can't do everything, but if you don't pace yourself, doing a lot at the beginning is counterproductive. Like you burn yourself out. You, you can't get as far as you would like. Hmm. So many people have to have a crisis. I had a crisis where I sort of told myself, um, I'm going to stop chasing expectations, what people think I'm supposed to do. Um, I'm going to do what I like and feel content with what I'm doing. I always want to do more, but try and feel content. Uh, And if that's a mode of... Operating that isn't appreciated where I'm working, then they'll let me go. Mm. Um, Which is kind of a fear, right? That's that imposter syndrome speaking to you. Like, I I don't deserve to be here. I'm not doing enough. And so I had to kind of turn it around and say, "Um, it's okay if I'm not doing enough. If I'm happy with what I'm doing uh, and I'm not doing enough, this isn't the right place for me. Mm -hmm. And almost be willing to let that go.
1: Yeah, so you have to take the risk not to be able to check all the boxes that are expected of you to check.
0: You can't check all the boxes. Yeah. As a, As as I, um, uh, I I love to be sort of uh, comical when I'm giving presentations and stuff. And so when I went up for my promotion in front of the low band committee, I had a slide sort of with a um, a one man band, and it had all the, and all the instruments were related to certain things that they ask of academics. Right. You know making impact on society, research, education, service. So we are a one-man band. However, if you listen to what people expect, they expect you to sound like a symphony orchestra, mm-hmm. which is impossible. And then you have to realize, well, a symphony orchestra is a collaboration of, of people that are very talented, but they're combining their talents. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I think we lose sight of that. The competitiveness makes us lose sight of that in academia sometimes. We are competing against our immediate peers rather than leveraging the, the, the common skills around to make a greater impact.
2: So Do you consider uh, yourself to be um, um, broken free from, the, from all these uh, expectations? I mean, is it, is it an individual endeavor? Or would you say this is also something... I'm uh, guiding my, uh, my own PhDs
0: uh, in, at the moment. It, it's a constant struggle. Um, uh, I fail at it all the time. Um, but as I, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I do research on failure. I, when I do my education, I try and teach about the importance of uh, failing, investigating your failings and seeing what you can learn from them. Uh, so I continue to fail. I put way too high expectations on myself all the time. I still feel imposter syndrome, so I still go through those cycles. Uh, but every time you 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 gain a little bit more insight, it becomes easier, or the challenges shift a bit. <laughs> and, yeah.
2: and you need a breakdown before you get an insight? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, well, you need a failure, and failure is a stigmatized word. Mm. Um, It's one of the things I have to teach all my students. Uh, If you look at the definition of failure is just not meeting a particular goal. And I think the problem that people stigmatize with it is a failure is something that you experience, it's not something that you are. Um, And if you can make that disconnect and look at your failures as not defining who you are but it's something that you experienced and take something, you know, what can I take away from that? What can I learn from that to improve? Uh, that is sort of the the crisis you you have to go through with that. Um, and when you recognize that and you look at the world around you, you really see everything in the world is built up on that principle, right? You know, Elon Musk is successful with SpaceX and launching rockets into space uh, with people on it. There weren't people on the first rocket, and for good reason, right? (laughs) And the number of rockets that failed before they were able to do this magical thing of launch a rocket and then have the rocket return and land on a floating platform in the middle of the ocean. Um, Yeah, that was a huge, ambitious goal that required a lot of failure and a lot of reflection on failure to to reach. Mm. Um, And... I think we're very hard on ourselves as academics whenever we experience a failure. We internalize it too much. Uh, uh, and, you know, we expect ourselves to be perfect. Uh, and so I, I, I now actually do an exercise that every day I go home and I try and write down what is something I failed at today. Uh, and there's something you fail at every day. If you think hard enough, you'll find something. Uh, and doing that helps you realize that it's not failure isn't such a, a bad thing. And then once you identify the thing, it's like, well, what can I take away from this?
1: Very interesting approach. Yeah, yes. I,
2: I, I'm, I'm also thinking like, is, is this the kind of thing you say to your colleagues here? Perhaps they all consider themselves to be a one-person orchestra. Like, do you then give them an inspirational speech, like you're doing right now, about not identifying with a failure but seeing it as an experience? Is how do you make that change? Yeah,
0: I'm. I'm sure the voice would be slightly different because my my wife would explain would tell me right now, Calvin, you're using your explainy voice. You're using your teaching <laughs> voice, and it's a it's, it's okay a for podcast. It's, it's because it's a podcast. It's a it's a type of environment. Um, however, I will tell you something. Uh, a nice story that uh that happened um so our department's just gone through a, re- a huge restructuring it's not really that important but we got rid of um a lot of the hierarchy so it's everyone is kind of their own principal investigator um and as a result of this the hierarchical structure for um yearly reviews was gone who was going to give the yearly review so we actually did a high doc and um we basically had to write down our strengths and then we Did peer sort of intervision things to discuss. You know, what is your strength? What is your weakness? And ask for feedback from different colleagues. That was the most surprising day of my life because there were people here that I thought were extremely confident, well thought out, and they would come with, you know, their story of, I feel I'm not good at doing this. I would like feedback on this. Uh, And it was very uh, empowering to see that these people that you always see as having everything together and being so successful had the same sort of doubts and, and uh, feeling like an imposter or uh, themselves. But not only that, they viewed you
1: as the one who has it together, as the one that has
0: it together. And it was such a powerful day. I, I I still remember some of those discussions and still dumbfounded by it and, I think we fail to be, you know, open and honest and authentic on a regular basis. We're always trying to project, um, yeah, that we have things sorted in together.
2: And was a trick putting everyone together? Was it a combination of removing parts of the hierarchy? Is, is there some kind of synergistic effect where, where?
0: I think what really worked for this one, and this is such a... silly little thing, but uh, the yearly reviews used to be documented. Here's your agreements, here's your reviews, goes to HR in a report, which is terrible because no one, that's like, no one wants to be authentic and put something that could be used to judge against them. So in this Haidach, it was just one-on-one conversations. Nothing was being documented. It was just a feedback session between two people. Uh, And that took away all the barriers um, to be open and honest because you weren't shooting yourself in the foot by writing down on a piece of paper that got filed in an HR file on you that you feel that uh, you don't have proper research skills or (laughs) you don't think you're a very strong teacher or um, so it's kind of interesting to see how those barriers and boundary conditions shape you Um, and I would say as educators, we're aware of it because we're always annoyed about that with students, right? You know, how they work for a grade because the exam and they just want to pass. And if you look at it and remember what it was like to be a student, you can understand why they're so concerned about a grade. Um, And those boundary conditions are there. And it's shaping the learning process rather than creating the freedom uh, for a more authentic situation.
2: Do you still find the, the beliefs uh, that support such a system around you? I mean, I, I can imagine that this whole idea of let's, let's <laughs> bureaucratize this process, uh, let's, let's create some um, uh, metrics on how we can, can, can track people's development. I mean, it comes from a good place uh, or good intentions, I assume. I, I, I don't dare to be cynical about everyone in power. Uh, But I can imagine that HR just tries to manage their work. Are there certain beliefs that are the roots of such uh, a system which you think, well, I think that uh, it has a destructive effect or we should change those beliefs?
0: It's quite interesting. I watched a video kind of related to this. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was was looking at... um, the advent of computers and automation and how it was supposed to reduce the amount of time we work. Uh, but we still work the same amount of time, if not more. And what we did is create all these additional layers of oversight and measurement and you know, new KPIs so that you could talk about people and their performance in a non-personal way. And I think this is part of the issue, is that uh, we've kind of diverted from the person in, in the trenches, really, um, being passionate about their work and 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 wanting to do a good job, right? I actually say an academic is a good, uh, a good example of this. You don't go into academia for the money. Um, usually, you don't go into it for the fame either. Some people do, but most people go into it because it's something they really want to do. So how? important is it to measure with a number how they're doing. I would say it's not important at all. What is important is to give authentic feedback on things as you see it. You don't need to quantify it. Um, This is a big challenge right now and I'm worried about it with the whole um, Room for Everyone's Talent uh, program in the Netherlands with, you know, making a place for education. Very, very noble activity. Um, but now the big discussion is how do I measure the quality of education? How do I measure if someone is doing a good enough job at teaching? And the more measurements, you know, if it's student surveys or all these sorts of things, instead of being a authentic measure of it, it becomes a milestone I need to meet. And then you get into the grade syndrome of students. You have teachers, you know, I'm going to make the test a little bit easier so I get better student surveys, or I'm going to do this to increase my pass rate because that's what's being looked at.
1: Yeah, Um, we also know from psychology that um, doing this totally kills the intrinsic motivation to do something. As soon as you give someone a cookie for performance, they stop wanting to do the thing in the first place. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. And I think a lot of, uh, we've gotten into a lot of this process monitoring and putting metrics on it. And it's it's because we have this whole layer trying to control things that don't actually have that authentic connection. Whereas before all this automation, you might have had a pit boss, but he was working side by side by mm. these people and constantly giving feedback. And everybody wanted to do a good job. Um, so...
2: Would you say that that management is generally focused on the metrics? If we if we want to persuade them, especially in a university, um, perhaps specifically a technical university where um, uh, quantifiable information is perhaps valued most in drawing conclusions, how do you see that transition?
0: Yeah, it's uh, well it. Before we had the microphone on, uh, we were talking about uh, the whole idea of research funding, which I think is a, a good example of this, where um, you know we're trying to make an impact in society through our research. That is the goal of it. Uh, and if you look at the whole process of getting research funding, and the amount of money spent in, in the reading proposals, the amount of time professors uh, and academics spend writing proposals with the success rate, the huge investment in time and effort there I believe has become counterproductive to the goal of the research. Uh, And as we were saying, uh, discussed with many of my colleagues, it might, and I don't know how to quantify it exactly, but it might be more impactful to just take all that money and put it in a lottery, uh, and everyone gets a lottery ticket every year. uh, And you'll get some money, you'll get money some years, you won't other years but it will free up so much of your time to go into the lab and do research yourself to work alongside some of your students. Um, I don't remember the last time I went into the lab. Uh, uh, Well, sorry, that's not right. I go into the lab when there's usually some sort of safety issue or or something like that that you have to deal, or conflict that you have to deal with, but not actually to do do research. Um, And that has become, but that has become the metric, how much money you can bring in um, and it drives terrible behavior and you know I I do research on failure and fatigue which is an experimental field which is the worst field uh, because the research takes so long right so from a productivity standpoint for putting out publications and um, it's really bad to do that Uh, and in fact what you probably want to do is do research in a field that you can do computer simulations because it's cheaper right you can pump out things faster and if you want more citations, uh, you better be doing something in a field where there's a lot of people working, which is completely counter what, to what universities should be doing, right? We should be pursuing research that nobody else is looking at. We're supposed to be the the blue sky idea. Let's do the stuff before people see the value in it. Um, and and we divert from that and start playing the games of... Uh, how to get more citations and and age index. I've actually joked, uh, and it's a joke that is true, but I've joked with some of my uh, tenure-tracking colleagues. It's like if you want to increase your age factor, uh, do one of two things. One, write a review paper. Uh, Because people are lazy, they don't want to read a lot of literature, so they cite review papers all the time. Second is publish something with an obvious error see if you can sneak it through peer review because academics love to cite you and tell you you're wrong and your citation and h factor doesn't tell you why they're citing you Uh, some of the most highly cited papers are because there's a huge fallacy in it and just people want to point out that you're wrong or that something was done improperly Um, and to me that's examples of yeah, how it can get broken. Because doing a literature study, okay, occasionally a literature study can be useful. But from, from my perspective, the people who should be doing literature studies are the, or, 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 or literature survey people, papers are people at the end of their career who really know the whole field, have spent their whole life in it, and are in a position to really synthesize everything. Uh, but we have every PhD in their first year writing a literature review and trying to publish it, um, yeah. which is...
1: And do you think that comes from the motivation of being cited often, or is this...
0: It, it comes from that. There's the pressure to, to do that. And not... We refer back earlier to the, the what I said I said with the crisis. I was always constantly being told, I need more publications, I need more citations, my age factor needs to increase, I need to spend less time teaching because that was less important. Uh, and I kind of looked at myself and I said, I could do all those things, but I'm not going to enjoy it. And I said, they want me to do less teaching, but actually that's the thing that I enjoy. Uh, I still love doing research, but I'm not going to take something that I feel should be one paper and divide it up into two papers. And this is where I had that sort of crisis where I said, okay, I can choose to do it the way that I want to do it, knowing that perhaps they won't like it. Uh, And I think... Every academic has to find that that line on that spectrum of being completely idealistic and, you know, scamming the system. And where do they fall on that line with their own personal values? Um, and, and, and clearly sort of say, that's my limit. You know, I'll play the game up to a point, but I don't want to cross that point uh, because then you start losing yourself. Then it becomes a job uh, and not work that is part of your life you've crossed that threshold um and that creeps up on people a lot you you you, you sort of see that game of i'm just going to do this until i get tenure and then you get tenure and it's like i'm just going to keep doing this until i get to associate professor and there's always the next excuse i'm just going to keep doing this and then at some point you realize i'm now that person
1: and you haven't had a satisfying work-life balance for 20 years no. <laughs> Yeah. so you said several things to improve work-life balance there is the question of uh, how to rearrange the funding okay. for no. example make it a lottery would be one idea um, there is your own way of dealing with it by communicating boundaries
0: yeah no.
1: um,
0: I th- and I think that important one like I said on that spectrum um, because it It is academia is a hustle, right? There is a game to it. Um, And I think that's the part that affects people very early on because they they realize that and they go into it playing the game uh, really hard and tenure forces people into that, unfortunately. Um, That's why I'm happy they've changed the whole process here a little bit but that's a different discussion. Um, And people kind of Fit into that role, and it's like this is what I have to do for this period of time, and they compartmentalize it. And I think uh, rather than focusing on separating your work from your life in academia, you have to find a way that they overlap in a meaningful way, and that you're still your authentic, you know, personal self in your job. Um, so it. it it's, it's weird in a way i feel that for a better work-life balance you have to better integrate your work and life mm. uh, be more of yourself in your work and, and you know just like in a relationship um, you don't want to put up with stuff in your relationship that you don't feel like you're being you um, you need to you need to be yourself in that and and live with the consequences that that will develop in your relationship so you have the same relationship with your your work
2: I can imagine that this is also different for people who are from different cultures. Um, We we talk quite easily about, well, you just have to consider this and you have to make your own choices and there you go. Um, We are uh, filled with mirror neurons where we are uh, copying other people's behavior, thinking this is the norm, I should probably do this as well. Um, some people might be more susceptible to that than others. I think um, in the Netherlands, we are a rather individualistic um, society. Um, what do you think about how to change that system, given, for instance, that the majority of people at this university uh, aren't, are not born here?
0: Yeah, how to change the system. Unfortunately, that takes a lot of time Takes trailblazers um, because the reality is, is if you if enough people don't try and make that change in the way they approach things, um, you just get um, a cycling of through the higher uh, positions that are actually in a position to change. Uh, you get the people who uh, played all those games, right? That like they benefited. The way they got to their position was by by doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's uh, that's where you have to have maybe, like I said, I had that little crisis and I sort of said, look, I'm okay if I'm never a full professor, right? That's almost a taboo thing for academics to say. Um, I said, oh, I'm going to put time and effort into education. Um, I'm going to have the balance that I feel works for me, not what people are telling me I need to be doing. Um, and just have fun with it uh, until I can't. Uh, and I had to kill all my career ambitions to be happy with my career. Doesn't mean you can't still be ambitious, but if if we that ambition is driving you to not be yourself and to to divert from that, it can be quite destructive. Uh, and then if you get to a position of power where you can make change, having done that. Um, it's human nature not to make it easier for the people underneath you, right? It's like that we, we see it as teachers as well, right? Sometimes we see students and we sort of say, they're lazy. They need to suffer the way that I did. And, uh, you know, when I was studying, you know, I worked way harder. Somehow we would project all of that um, rather than taking a step back and, and, and saying, okay, let's, let's look at my own experience. Let's look at these people as individuals. What are they experiencing now? How has the context changed? Um, because it has. Um, I got an academic position during my PhD. I only published two papers. Nowadays, most people wouldn't be allowed to defend their PhD only having two publications. Um, And I'm not necessarily the most successful academic, but I consider myself a pretty decent academic. I wouldn't be able to graduate with the work that I did uh, in today's situation
2: um but you now do decide for others
0: i i have allowed people to graduate uh with less publications i, I look at the work um and i is I that your way
2: of passing the torch in a, in a positive way
0: <laughs> yeah i try and uh i try and influence the the small sphere that i have and you know we've had all those discussions with phd students and in, in uh through that program and uh uh, in the Q&A when they first start the program. And my little mission is to tell as many PhDs that their work is meaningless. <laughs> it's kind of a funny way to put it. But, you know, the research they do is just, it's a playground. Um, what is actually more meaningful coming out of that is the, is the person, you, the, the, the actual candidate, the independent thinker, the critical thinker, the researcher. That's the product of a PhD. And the thesis is a book you put on a shelf. Um, And when you recognize that, then you can start to look at yourself, your values, where you're going too far because you see you as the important thing, not those metrics, not the number of publications or the number of citations or is my research making an impact on the world.
2: Um, Do you see a difference in which... uh which PhD candidates stay in academia and which ones go to industry? For instance, is it a type of person of which you think, "No, please stay in academia. You can make the change. Why are you flying out? You should be changing the system instead of fleeing from it." If they
0: are, I'm not sure. Um. Yeah, uh, I would say it's not those going to, to academia versus those going to industry. It's it's a. Uh, it's more a subtle change over time. So if I look at most tenure trackers or early career researchers, they have a beautiful view of how academia should be. They're much more idealistic. Um, they really want to do good. Um, and then they're confronted with the competition and you know people demanding more. And I see them slowly being worn down until they play the game. And that's why I talked about that spectrum. Many of them move closer and closer to the the hustle side of things. And I don't know all of them well enough to know when or if they cross their values. But I think most people coming in um, have the capacity to make that change if they can keep that aspect of themselves. If they can be brave enough to say, I'm not going to play the game. I'm going to uh, be authentic to myself and have enough self-worth to realize that I don't need to be here. There's somewhere else I can be and make a difference if it's not liked. Um, It's just like being in a relationship. You don't want to be in a relationship where you can only stay in that relationship if you change for the other person. Right? Uh, and i think we have a quote there, there is, <laughs> and it, it's easy enough to see in your personal life like that but it's so subtle and it, it occurs over such a period of time and there's so many ways to, for us to delude ourselves whereas if people were saying that in a relationship you'd be you'd say you're insane you know if someone uh, maybe it's uh, politically incorrect to make a comparison with an abusive relationship, but perhaps it is a a good comparison. If someone's in an abusive relationship and it's like, yes, but I I love that person. um, I just need to give it more time and then it'll change. Sometimes I see that in academia. People are doing the grind and the job is really, uh, in a way, pushing them down and abusive to them. And you just sort of say, I just need to get through it and it's going to get better.
2: Oh, now I want to do a survey on the Stockholm Syndrome in <laughs> academia, but perhaps that's for another time.
0: <laughs> so, so when you say like people
2: are not, not uh, perhaps not not willing to play the game, or you, you hope that people would say more of that, um, the whole PI um, uh, prioritization here in this uh, in this uh, department, would you say that that helps in changing the game or changing this the system uh, in that sense? Is it too early to say?
0: It's pretty early to say. We've only made the change uh, this September. Um, What we found is... um,
1: What does it exactly mean, by the way? Sorry. So you say you got rid of the yearly evaluation?
0: Well, only for this year. We're going to have to have some sort of yearly evaluation next year. But the change that happened was um, the old system was you had a full professor who was a manager of a section consisting of assistant associate, professors working under the leadership and guidance of that full professor. We got rid of all sections and said, every staff member is their own independent staff member within the department. You don't have a direct manager. We should all collaborate and work together. We define values of our department. Um, The idea of feeling that You know, you go into academia because you want to make a difference and you don't need someone managing you. We need to allow people to manage themselves and make the connections. Like we do it outside of our faculty all the time. People collaborate with with partners very successfully. Uh, We shouldn't need to manage it so much inside. Um, So that's created a lot of interesting openness because now it's the sections aren't well, there are no sections, but before, you know, it was even the sections were competing with one another. Mm-hmm. So now it's just everyone's free to collaborate. It has also created a huge amount of its own challenges, one being communication. If you get rid of the manager who communicates things down, now it's a, a mishmash of uh, how do you get properly inform everyone, uh, especially when it's a big department. So we're kind of in the teething phase, but already we see... Um, interesting dialogues that show a change in culture. So we're talking about revising our master's track program um, and changing this culture of teaching as a duty of the department uh, and courses don't belong to individuals. They're duty of the department and people have an honor of contributing to it and we have to approach things as a team. Um, So it's quite exciting from that standpoint but it's still very, very early and chaotic with some things as well.
1: And is it run as a pilot at this point? So are you going to evaluate after a certain time and then change back to the management management layer if it doesn't work
0: out or what's uh, it, the idea? I guess uh, it's not intended mm-hmm. as, a, as a pilot. It's intended for a permanent thing for our department. Um, I can tell you a lot of departments are looking at it very closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Some younger staff members are are quite um, excited by it because um, one of the elements that we sort of said is, you know, the old management team used to be just full professors, right? So you were talking about change. Now our management team, um, half our permanent positions so the secretary of the department, the chair, um, uh, but the other positions are elected and they represent all segments of staff um, uh, across uh, even down to a PhD postdoc so we have on our management team for the department there's a PhD student uh, there's someone who's elected to represent education uh, so around themes rather than just this research group um, so that's already created a, a different perspective from from management mm. it's not focused on individual research interests it's more focused on collective duties and responsibilities and giving uh, uh, voices to the different groups Mm. because it's also there's a well it's now early career um, uh, staff because it used to be tenure tracker but there is position there's a tenure tracker in uh, the management team as well and you get a very diverse set of opinions and, and, and views and is quite nice. How
2: does it affect the work-life balance of people so far that you've seen? The self, self-reliant so work?
0: right yeah. now because of this transition, um, uh, so I'm, uh, full disclosure, I'm on the management team uh, with education um, and it's slightly disrupted the balance, I will be honest, because it's a lot of work facilitating that transition however it's something that's that, that, that type of change speaks to me and my personal values so it's a lot a heavy amount of work uh, but it's not in direct conflict with my life
3: hmm.
0: uh, it just means I'm a little bit more tired, uh, some of my hobbies have gone down a little bit um, uh, but that, that's a self imposed that are speaking to me, it's not someone saying you have to do this um so, uh, and it, I would say for most of the people involved that the, this first group of uh, or this first portion of the management team it's, uh, it is a lot of work
2: Did you also discuss that, uh, during the Heidach with each other in all uh, tr- I would say confidentiality openness uh, did you also discuss how can you self-manage if your uh, self-expectations are quite high no one is telling you what to do but you assume it Like how do you then um, decide for yourself uh, how far you wanna go?
0: Yeah, so what our department has defined five values. Um, You're gonna ask me to name all of them and I'm gonna mess it up. (laughs) So we have uh, authenticity, autonomy, trust, collaboration, and the fifth one's escaping me at the moment. But anyways, in in our hideoff, in our feedback session, we focused on those core values and and asked for feedback in relation to them because that's how we're trying to look at how we operate is according to those core values can we be uh, uh, transparent as the last one Um, are we ensuring to embody those values in what we do Uh, and I think you know the authenticity value really sparked in the high dog because people were being authentic when they were asking for feedback. It was one mm-hmm. of the few times we really experienced it. Um, but yeah, we were open in discussed issues, and the big one—it's not—it doesn't call anybody out. It's not a, a confidentiality thing, and it's the problem of most big institutions: was communication. Like one of the biggest challenges is just how do you make people aware of opportunities and what's going on. And how do we break the tendency to kind of keep to yourself certain things so that you benefit from it right so right now we're trying to as a simple thing be much more open on um, funding calls you know if someone's working on a a funding proposal we try and communicate openly about it we try and even share our proposals which puts people in uncomfortable positions because people are like oh someone's going to steal my idea it's like, if you can't work in a department where you trust people not to steal your ideas, what kind of department have we set up?
2: I, I recall, I think, an anecdote of you during one of those Q&A sessions where you said, I did this as, at a conference as well, yeah. where people were quite reluctant to share their early results, yeah. but you shared them, and it led to quite some collaborations, people being interested in knowing more, and no one stole your ideas.
0: Yeah, that I know of. That you know of, <laughs> there uh, we go. But even if they yeah. did, um, Again, that uh, it it kind of goes towards that uh, you know the idealistic you know playing the game spectrum again. If you're worried about people stealing your ideas, it's because you're trying to play the game to increase your metrics, get the publications, do all that kind of stuff. I look at it on the other idealistic side. If someone's stealing your idea, it was a good idea, and they're now doubling the effort to make that idea become a reality. So I can take that negative action and sort of say, well, that might actually still have a positive impact on it. And um, you sell yourself short if you think someone's going to steal my idea and that's just the end of it. They may steal your idea, but they don't steal you. And you have a unique perspective on it and unique abilities on it. Um, And... You want to try and get to that point of, rather than looking at that someone as stealing the idea, someone who's interested in that idea, how do I turn that sort of negative and make it a, a net positive?
2: You know, Someone you share a mission with can perhaps also yeah. take some work from you. So this yeah. means that you'll have more time on your hands for other things or to yeah. relax.
0: Because <laughs> we can be harsh to judge. I, there was a great... Um, It might seem a very side thing, again, I'm scatterbrained, but there was this uh, documentary on uh, people who believe in a flat earth, right? And it's easy to ridicule such people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in this documentary, one of the guys, uh, there was one guy from NASA who was sort of saying that um, you shouldn't ridicule them. Because if you look at most flat earthers, they're really trying to prove that it is flat. And they're actually misguided researchers. They're trying to go through the scientific process. And, and, and actually you can look at that as a moment to um, to, to uh, work with them and collaborate them and help them see. You don't need to prove them wrong. Uh, in fact, it's, it's very difficult to convince someone else of an opposing view. You have to help them come to the realization on their own. Um, and, Academics are even more stubborn than flat earthers in terms of changing their mind. <laughs> that's a that's a different story. But uh, you can always take that negative perspective and how can I how can I twist it? How can I you know walk around the table, look at it from another angle, try and remove the negativity from it? And is there something positive there? And usually there is, or that a seed of something positive.
1: Yeah, it also requires you to start from a different motivation, right? It's it's either you doing the work for your own career's sake or are you doing the work for solving some global problem or some problem of society. And if it's a second one, then it shouldn't matter that someone else steals your idea because you're both working on the same thing.
0: Yeah, Yeah, the example you alluded to, indeed, it was a conference and... I had written a conference paper and I was sharing the data. And at the end of my presentation, I put a QR code that you could download the data set immediately. And a number of academics came in to me and said, what are you doing? You haven't published it in a journal yet. It's like, I know, but I published the data set. You can reference the data set. It's not as powerful a reference as a journal paper. um, But I feel people should have access to it already and start being able to be inspired and think about it. And so, yes, I got ridiculed by academics, but I had 10 different companies contact me after the conference, thanking me for sharing that data. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting for them and asking, is there ways that they could contribute to my research, even if it's just in kind or thinking? Uh, And it opened up a dialogue that I wouldn't have been able um, to get uh, through the normal lobbying. Like if you're... Trying to talk to companies at a conference, they're just like, "What money do you want?" Right? Or, I don't have any money. I can't give you any money. Mm. Uh, and here was people just, you know, contacting me because I did something that they thought was amazing and against the grain. And we have to take those risks.
2: Do you recall what 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 pushed you or what gave you the final nudge to to share the information? When, when we take a look at um at stress, we often see that people are mostly worried about losing things. Um, how would you describe that for yourself?
0: I'm very lucky that I have a, a group of friends that I studied with um, that all went into academia from different routes. And that uh, I would say we are all a little bit more on the idealistic side of things. Um, and I use them as a sounding board uh, for things. Uh, and also just to get that final push to do something a little bit more idealistic and altruistic. Um, and I remember discussing them with this. It's like, I'm thinking about doing this at a conference. And and uh, and the, the, the part that they got me to is that nowadays you can share a data set and it can be, you can have a DOI on it, can be referenced. I we said, well, if you do that, then um, at least you will be connected to it even if someone publishes before you. Um, so your work will be acknowledged. You might not have that first paper and you might have difficult publishing a paper afterwards, but your contribution is, is acknowledged. And what is more important to you, um, having that extra journal publication or having that traceability that you contributed and made an impact on your research? And that's all I needed. At that point, is like, I don't care if someone publishes before me um, because it, Yeah, I have that clear uh, line of acknowledgement. Now, if they use the data and pass it off on their own and don't cite me, well, there's a certain level of bad behavior no matter what you do. They're going to find a way uh, to to, uh, have that unethical behavior. But um, having that sounding board has been really good. It helps me stay true to myself and my values.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. I think we're through the time. Yeah. Unfortunately, I because think... I feel like we, we could ask a hundred more questions <laughs> to you. Um,
0: uh, yeah. I'm always open for another podcast. We that should have day. a <laughs>
1: next episode on the, the change, the cultural change that you're going through right now, because I think that's a very impressive and interesting thing that's going on here. And I didn't know about that before.
2: Neither did I that's why yeah. we ask questions yeah <laughs> no, it's very interesting and like
0: i said uh, a lot of young staff see it as a uh, very interesting and empowering it's a polarizing topic our our rector is very positive about it sort of saying yes we need to give more voice more power to young people um, uh, recognize that tenure trackers and phds have something conti- to contribute it. it's not just full professors um, Whereas we had a research uh, visitation and they thought we were nuts. They were like, how can you give a PhD power in a management team? That's suicide.
1: You will prove them wrong. Yeah. So it's quite <laughs> it's
0: quite interesting. But I think it, to me it was more a reflection of in that system you had to fight your way to get to a full professor to have that sort of power.
3: Mm.
0: And now the right of that power by being in that position is no longer guaranteed Mm. Um, yeah and the whole idea of electing for some people it's like no you shouldn't you know it should be more like a dictatorship (laughs) Uh, and the fact that you could uh, lose your position on a management team if if you were behaving in a way that people didn't like that uh, that doesn't jive with a lot of people in a position of power these days
1: Sounds very attractive to me, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I so. Is there something that we can do for you?
0: Uh, well, you, you are uh, doing that in terms of uh, keeping a dialogue open for, for early career researchers. You know, in a way, um, although this podcast is more one-directional to the listeners... Um, I'm trying to be as open and authentic as what I said the experience was uh, in my Haidakh. So hopefully that will impact some people. Um, And you were a welcome disruption in a very hectic and stressful week. (laughs) Uh, And I'm actually going to go home today feeling quite good about the things that I accomplished today. So I was doing grading, some other, you, you know, meaningless, well, it's not meaningless, but... Uh, menial duties, uh, but uh, this has energized me and feel like uh, I am still accomplishing what I like to accomplish in academia, affecting people around me, putting smiles on faces, um, and uh, getting some cuddles with my dog who's been sitting on my lap this entire time. Very nice and quiet, uh, but uh, it's been a it's been a great afternoon. Right?
2: Uh, I wish we could have offered you a failure to write about tonight. but
3: Oh yeah, that's true.
2: <laughs> Is there something well, we can still... Fa- Did it record be, Yeah, everything? I was <laughs> going to say, be careful what you say. Yeah. <laughs> no, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, yeah.
1: should I stop then?
2: I, uh, I'm all good with that. Yeah. Sounds good.
1: Thank you for being here. Thanks. This has been The Human Side of Research, brought to you by Downside Up. We are curious if and how this conversation has sparked your interest. Send us your feedback and thoughts regarding this episode to podcast at downsideup.nl. Find Kelvin's website in the show notes. We would also love to hear from you if you would like to speak on the podcast or if you have suggestions for future topics and guests. If you need help improving the work culture in your research team, please check out our website for various ways we can help. Until next time!